Did COVID-19 leak from the Wuhan Virology Lab? This question is back in the spotlight after the U.S. Energy Department concluded that virus most likely came from a lab leak. The report comes from the new intelligence, plus a recap of China's infamous Batwoman researcher from Wuhan and the lab's ties to China's military. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Sue Biamba, and for Tiffany Meyer. Did the COVID-19 virus leak from Wuhan's virus lab? This question returning to center stage after the release of a new report. China dismisses that possibility, though a classified report from the Energy Department may suggest otherwise. Sent directly to Congress, the document concludes that COVID-19 most likely came from a lab leak. The update comes from the Wall Street Journal, citing unnamed sources. The U.S. intelligence community is split over COVID-19's origin. The FBI and the Energy Department say the virus could have come from a lab leak, while several other agencies, including a national intelligence panel, suggest it came from animal transmission. The origin of the virus has been a subject of intense debate for years, and at the center of those questions is a lab called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. China never allowed independent investigation into the Wuhan lab. And in November 2019, three researchers from the facility started getting sick. That's according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. Other allegations say the lab was shut down briefly in October of the same year. Sources told NBC there was no cell phone activity in part of the lab for most of October, suggesting it closed down, and that there might have been a hazardous event. One woman remains in the center of the dispute. The Wuhan lab is led by virologist Shi Zhengli. She's known as China's Batwoman. Her team studies some of the world's most dangerous pathogens. And for over a decade, Sure has been testing how different coronaviruses from animals can infect humans. The lab denied having ties to China's military. But after the pandemic broke out, Beijing sent the country's top biodefense expert, Chen Wei, to take over the lab. Chen is a major general for the Chinese military. One more state is moving to ban China from buying U.S. farmland. Lawmakers in Virginia are expressing concerns that the purchases undermine U.S. national security. Here's what they're proposing. Lawmakers in the Virginia House of Delegates and Senate recently approved a bill that bans foreign adversaries, including China, from buying farmland in the Commonwealth. Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin is expected to sign this bill. He discussed the problem in his State of the Commonwealth address in January. While the national security concerns and personal privacy implications of CCP technology are well known, I believe Virginians also should be wary of Chinese communist intrusion into Virginia's economy. Virginia's list of foreign adversaries includes communist China, Cuba, Russia, North Korea, and a Venezuelan politician. The bill also requires Virginia's Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services to publish an annual report of foreign land ownership to the governor and general assembly. Virginians not the CCP should own the rich and vibrant agricultural lands God has blessed us with. That is why I'm asking this General Assembly to send me a bill to prohibit dangerous foreign entities tied to the CCP from purchasing Virginia's farmland. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Chinese entities owned about 14,000 acres of farmland in Virginia as of the end of 2021. Most of that is tied to the 2013 purchase of Smithfield Foods, the largest pork producer in the U.S. The ban would be retroactively effective from January 1st. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. 
Earlier this year, the U.S. shut down a Chinese corn mill project in North Dakota. The project was slated for construction next to a U.S. Air Force base. But military officials warned of national security risks in a letter to local authorities. The clock is ticking for U.S. government agencies over their use of a Chinese-owned app. They're under orders to scrub popular short video sharing platform at TikTok from their devices within a month. Here's the story. U.S. government agencies have 30 days to make sure TikTok is not on federal devices or systems. That was the order given by the White House on Monday. U.S. authorities believe the Chinese social media app could be used to spy on Americans. Washington's move follows similar actions by the EU and Taiwan. U.S. neighbor Canada also blocked TikTok from government-issued devices on Monday. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We're making the decision that uh, for government uh, employees, for government equipment, um, it is better uh, to not have them access TikTok uh, because of the concerns uh, that people have in terms of safety. ByteDance-owned TikTok has previously argued the concerns are driven by misinformation. It's denied using the app to spy on Americans. The ban does not affect the more than 100 million Americans who use TikTok. The social media giant did not immediately comment on the White House order. TikTok's apparent company, ByteDance, is based in Beijing. Chinese companies are required by law to comply with authorities and hand in data if requested. And how did Beijing respond to the White House move? A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson on Tuesday described the U.S. decision as a wrong approach, overstretching the concept of national security. She also accused the U.S. of, quote, completely lacking any self-confidence accusing the globe's number one superpower of fearing what she called a mobile phone application that young people like so much. Worth noting, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, ChatGPT, and a number of other social media apps are banned inside China. The U.S. State Department is condemning Beijing following the death of a jailed journalist. Radio host Pang Shen had been detained in a prison in southwestern China's Sichuan province for his belief in the spiritual discipline Falun Gong. Here's the story. Pang Shun was 30 years old when he died in December last year. The prison where he was jailed is notorious for its brutality toward adherents of Falun Gong. The spiritual meditation system has been the target of a Chinese state-run persecution campaign for more than 23 years. Before we go further, please be aware that some audiences may find the following footage disturbing. <laughs> Pong's friend released photos of his body, visibly covered with scars and bruises. It directly contradicts prison authorities' claim that he had died of hyperthyroidism. The condition is a metabolism-related disease and doesn't cause scars or bruises. A U.S. State Department spokesperson responded in a written statement to the Epoch Times. It says the department calls on the Chinese regime to immediately end its abuse and mistreatment of Falun Gong practitioners, release those imprisoned due to their beliefs, and address the whereabouts of missing practitioners. He added that the department considers all appropriate tools to promote accountability for those responsible for human rights violations and abuses in the PRC and elsewhere. PRC is shorthand for the People's Republic of China.
So far, the United States has sanctioned three Chinese officials involved in the persecution of Falun Gong in China. New global trade details coming to light ahead of a U.S. House hearing Tuesday. A written statement reveals about 70 percent of all applications for export licenses involving China got approved in 2022, given the green light by the Commerce Department and other government agencies. The Undersecretary of Commerce for Industry and Security is set to testify before the House Foreign Affairs Committee to share that data. His statement adds that approvals of any licenses involving China are not loopholes in our controls, and points out license applications for China had an average processing time of approximately 77 days a period he calls significantly longer than the average processing time of approximately 40 days for all cases. The Commerce Department has put nearly 640 China-based parties on its trade blacklist, known as the Entity List. Those companies are restricted from receiving goods and technology from the U.S. Beijing's actions in the Indo-Pacific may be having an unintended effect, pushing countries that are often at odds with each other to become friends. South Korea and Japan held their first economic security dialogue this week, joined by the U.S. and Hawaii. Here's what they discussed. The discussion mainly includes exchanging technologies, boosting supply chains for semiconductor, and protecting data vulnerabilities. The South Korean president's office suggested the three countries consolidate major supply chains to improve resilience and crisis response capabilities. Historically, relations between Japan and South Korea have remained poor since World War II, when Japan occupied the Korean peninsula. But the two East Asian countries are now seeking cooperation amid threats from their communist neighbor, Beijing. Japan and South Korea are both crucial U.S. allies in Asia. South Korea houses the world's second-largest semiconductor industry following Taiwan. Semiconductor trade between Korea and China recently came under pressure as the U.S. seek to isolate Beijing from the critical technology. What's more, Japan is Asia's most economically and technologically advanced country and also produces semiconductors. At the talks in Hawaii, the officials also discuss exchanges in areas including quantum, bio, and space technologies. Reporting from New York City, Sam Wong, NTD News. Tensions between China and Taiwan have moved into the spotlight, now showing up on financial risk radars. Analysts say money managers are zeroing in on the threat of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan and factoring it into their investment decisions. While funding managers say they're fielding client questions about the odds of a war, here's why. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has repeatedly confirmed Beijing will pursue control of Taiwan by force if necessary. Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen pledges to uphold peace and avoid provocation, but says the island will defend itself if attacked. Analysts note that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made European investors especially wary saying they can't afford new losses if conflict was to break out in Taiwan after the Russian situation. A China-Taiwan war would also wreak havoc on global supply chains. The Taiwan Strait is a major shipping route from East Asia to the United States and Europe. What's more, the island is a critical player in global microchip production. Taiwan has long been a flashpoint in U.S.-China relations. 
Those ties are now further strained following the shootdown of a Chinese spy balloon that had floated across the U.S. Beijing officials are celebrating victory over the COVID-19 pandemic, but hospital beds remain crowded in the country, and authorities are passing off that sickness and other viruses. Here's the story. Beijing CDC reported last Wednesday that the city has had more flu patients than those with COVID-19. That was for the week from February 13th to the 19th, with the most common infection being type A influenza. Soon after, China's top COVID-19 expert declared the pandemic basically over in the country, calling it a major victory. But is this so-called victory based on solid footing? Videos shared online capture hospitals that are still fully packed with patients. Other footage shows fever-sickened children filling up beds in a northern Chinese city. In other regions, similar outbreaks are emerging in preschools and universities. Doctors and school officials maintain that these are simply flu infections. Yet some are questioning why measures used for COVID-19 control are getting reinstated. Schools in Shanghai, Ningbo and Tianjin have suspended classes due to the alleged flu. I have colleagues whose children attend nursery schools there. Usually a class has over 20 kids, but these days there are less than half. College students return to school on the 25th. They are currently on temporary lockdown. Others fear that officials are using the flu to cover up a second wave of outbreaks. Because it's not transparent, the Chinese Communist Party blocks the truth. They cover up the outbreak in all kinds of data, including the death toll, the infection rate, and so on. So how can we trust that this pandemic is basically over? Of note, both COVID-19 and flu cause fever and sore throat in their early stages. It remains to be seen which virus led to the current upsurge. Exactly how much loyalty does the Chinese Communist Party demand from its members? A lot, based on certain rules. And it goes so far that China-based stuff at one foreign company are being asked to wear their Communist Party pin badges at work. The, the emblems signify membership in the party and are meant to display the wearer's loyalty to Beijing. Here's the story. The company is British consulting firm Ernst & Young. It's one of the globe's big four accounting firms. According to Financial Times, the Communist Party committee at the company's China office made the demand, directing all party members to wear the pins daily starting last week. Employees got the memo via email. The directive also comes at an important and sensitive time for lawmaking in Beijing, just ahead of China's annual parliamentary meetings, known as the Two Sessions. The summit will see Chinese leader Xi Jinping officially confirmed for his third term, plus new officials appointed and legislative decisions made. The lawmaking body has been dubbed China's rubber stamp legislature, owing to how it passes every bill the CCP proposes without fail. Coming up, a closer look at some of the risks behind green energy and how it ties into the West's dependence on China. Tiffany Myers spoke to Rex M. Lee, cybersecurity advisor at MySpark Privacy, for a breakdown. His comments after the break here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Sue Bianba, and for Tiffany Meyer. Green energy, but is it really green? And is the dependence on China behind green energy a bigger problem? Tiffany Meyer spoke to Rex M. Lee, cybersecurity advisor at MySmart Privacy, about this take on the issue. Rex Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Tiffany, thank you for having me. So it seems right now there's more focus on, say, environmental hazards, especially after the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. And recently, Al Gore actually made some pretty interesting comments. He was saying that every day there's about like boiling oceans and rain bobs during unhinged speech at Davos. So what was so significant of this speech and maybe what are the controversial aspects of it? Well, Al Gore is what I call an environmental evangelist who's preaching climate apocalypse, uh, which is good. We do need to take care of our environment. And uh, so, you know, we do need to reduce our, our carbon footprints. But what's interesting about what happened at the World Economic Forum in Davos was not only did he state, state that there were rain bombs and the oceans were boiling, but he actually stated that there were over 600,000 um, Hiroshima-class nuclear bombs going off in our atmosphere due to climate change. Now, if that were if that were true, we would all be dead um, because uh, 600,000 nuclear bombs a day would just literally uh, genocide every human being on the planet. Um, and so, what a lot of people don't understand about Al Gore and um, what makes some of his statements somewhat hypocritical is that he's on the board of Apple. A lot of people don't realize this, but he's been on the board of Apple for many years. Apple is tied to Foxconn, the largest manufacturer of electronics in the world, and they have a horrible uh, environmental record. Their carbon footprint is absolutely huge. They have Foxconn plants all over the world, Taiwan, China, even in uh, Wisconsin, uh, and so forth. And, and in almost every place where they're at, they've had some issues. Uh, one of the issues in China uh, had to do with the fact that one of their plants uh, uh, exposed residents to poisonous gases um, as, as regarding a gas leak at one of the plants that was manufacturing Apple iPhones. Uh, so again, you, you know, when you look at this and you see that Al Gore is on the board of Apple you, and on one hand, he's also uh, preaching that we're under a climate apocalypse and that we're all going to die soon if nothing changes about our environment. You have to ask yourself, is Al Gore an industrialist or is he an environmentalist uh, posing you know, or is he an industrialist posing as an environmentalist? Uh, he seems to not have any problem with Foxconn's footprints or Foxconn's uh uh, environmental record, as well as uh, Foxconn's uh, labor record regarding slave labor and so forth. It seems if we look at these green re green legislations, as you just mentioned, all these rare earth mining, that's actually quite harmful for the environment in many cases. So is there a conflict of interest? What's happening here? Yeah, so again, you go back to the people who are pushing uh, climate uh, change legislation. They seem to be the evangelists telling us at every corner that uh, the, the environment is on the uh, verge of climate apocalypse uh, if we don't make any changes now. 
um, as if green energy products grow on trees and, and it's real clean, but uh, that's not the case. Uh, there's a lot of negative impact to the environment regarding rare earth mineral mining for cobalt, lithium, and nickel. Those are the primary uh, uh, minerals and uh, metals that are uh, used in the manufacturing of uh, lithium batteries and solar panels and so forth and windmills, wind turbines and everything. All of that has to be mined from the earth and put together in factories that create uh, a large carbon footprint. And a lot of these factories and a lot of these mining companies, uh, uh, even though they're all over the world, the majority of them come out of uh, China uh, as well. So there's a lot of pollution. And Rex, you touched on kind of the reliance or the growing reliance on China for a lot of these materials and supplies or even the companies behind a lot of, say, solar panels or wind turbines. What do you see in terms of that dependence going forward? Well, yeah, at, at the end of the day, uh, a lot of this ties back to our uh, reliance on China. We, we already under, we understand today that relying on China for our critical infrastructure regarding our supply chain is not a good thing, especially regarding electronics and pharmaceuticals and so forth. Um, and now we're asking to be reliant on China again for um, renewable energy. Um, and this is happening through uh, uh, several factors. The biggest factor is rare earth uh, mineral mining for cobalt, nickel, and lithium. Cobalt uh, is a key ingredient in all of these um, uh, batteries that are being used for lithium, all these lithium ion batteries being used for green or renewable energy. Uh, 95% of the cobalt's coming out of Africa and through China's Belt and Road Initiative, they're capitalizing on that 95% out of Africa. It all flows back into uh, China. With lithium, it's about 65%, but then when you consider how high those two numbers are for the, the reliance on China for those two rare earth minerals for renewable energies, now you have to consider the manufacturing. Um, you, you're talking numbers of 70, 80, and 90% when it comes to the manufacturing of wind turbines, uh, solar panels, and infrastructure. So not only is the rare earth minerals, be, uh, are we becoming dependent on China for those, such as lithium and cobalt, but we're also dependent highly on China for the manufacturing of the infrastructure uh, for all of this. Um, and as you can tell, if you, if you go back and you circle back to uh, congressional leaders and elected officials, family members who are benefiting from this, Hunter Biden becomes a great example of this uh, when he's on the board for BHR or has been on the board for BHR and so forth. Hunter Biden actually came up when I did uh, research on lobbyists. He came up not as a consultant. Uh, for BHR, but he came up as an actual employee and he was the, listed as the actual lobbyist. Um, and uh, so that's a, a direct conflict that goes directly to the president and his family members who could be benefiting off of this green legislation at the end of the day, while China uh, is benefiting heavily on this as well. And Rex, it sounds like with all of these areas, energy policy is becoming na a national security issue. And ultimately, they say the taxpayers are going to be feeling that cost. So what can the concerned citizen do going forward? Well, I think the concerned citizen actually needs to learn more about where 
um, and how green energy is. Um, they have to learn about how it's uh, mined, uh, the, the key ingredients for it, how it's manufactured, who is manufacturing it, what countries are we reliant on for this? And these reports are great. And that happened in Texas as we became more reliant on green energy two years ago. Uh, that reliance on green energy caused our um, grid to go down in Texas uh, during the Texas winter storm. And, and there were hundreds of deaths. And to your point, Rex, even President Biden said in his State of the Union address that coal would be around for another 10 years at least. But with all the areas covered, any final words? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, regarding coal, be around for 10 years. I think it'll be around for hundreds of years, especially uh, with China's dependent on coal, India and other countries. We're the only country that is actually reducing our dependency on coal, along with some European countries. But all of the other uh, countries around the world are heavily dependent on coal, and they're not going to give up that dependency either. And we can't do it at the expense of, of literally people's lives, as we've seen in Germany and in Texas, uh, where it's not only financially are people uh, hit uh, negatively by these this migration to green energy it's actually costing people their lives um, and so we need to do we need to come about it more sensibly as well Rex Lee thank you so much for joining us thank you that's all for today's China in Focus I'm Sue Bianba if you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the rest of your week.